Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. they would have is they would have um, various other means by which you could 
change your life from the inside out. Whatever internal thing you were doing. And they would go further. Isn't it interesting? They would have pots throughout. In fact, remember how we talked about when Jesus took the water of the wine, the pots that the water was in were actually liquid pots. They were purely cleansing pots. And so they would have these pots throughout their house. They would have these pots throughout the town. And so if you thought you accidentally bumped up against somebody who might have been unclean, to cover yourself just in case, you would wash your hands, which was the sign of I'm not here, I'm not clean yet, I'm not holy yet. And this was their life. And for us, that seems kind of ridiculous. They felt that purity was so important, this holy was so important, that if they had even sat in a town where an unclean person might have sat, they could have become unclean again. And so they would wash themselves as a result of that. Now, I would like to suggest to you, because your immediate thing is going to be, well, that's really fear and condemnation. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's fear of what happens if, and it's condemnation over this this fear of I've, I've got to get right. Thinking about, here's the deal. I mean, how really, how thoughtful are you being about your holiness that you at random wash your hands in case you sat in a chair with some unclean person? How, how heartfelt is that kind of moment? Well, it's really not. But I'd like to suggest to you that our act of 350 repentances a day, or how many times have we done the, the, the blanket prayer of, and for all the things that I forgot to ask or commit to, God, forgive me for that mistake. Same with prayer. So you have to remember that in the context of Jesus, throughout that time, purity code was deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained in their lifestyle. But you'll subsequently find lists of deaths, and, and it was very specific as to scribes, purity, uh, excuse me, um, purity rituals for cleanliness. But um, they had these distinct lines and boundaries that really all of humanity, the Jews weren't uh, any different than the rest of just humanity. We've all, humanity's been obsessed with purity or about right and wrong as long as we've had documentation. And so the lines setting the distinction between what is holy and what is sacred and what is not is something that humanity has been obsessed with as long as we know. Um, Jesus said some very interesting things about that. I've got those a couple verses that come up in verse 8. He really moves a lot. I'm just going to reference these. But Jesus references this when he talks about how they would obsessively or ritualistically um, talk about making sure that the cups were clean. And Jesus says, look, you're worried about making sure that the outside of the cup is clean. You're worried it's the inside that matters. Jesus says something about it's not that which comes uh, um, it's not that which you you uh, comes out of a man that you put into a person that defiles him. He talks about these kinds of things, and it's always been something that Jesus came and really moved the line on. So actually, I was reading the other day, and I found this. Archaeologists found what they believe um, is the oldest still existing temple on the planet. So they actually found in uh, in Turkey this temple that they believe is over 11,000 years old. That's old. That's old. 
an 11,000-year-old temple. The, uh, the Netherlands actually, to date, stone hewed by six to 7,000 years ago. They say that um, it predates the invention of writing by over 6,000 years. This temple. So what that tells us is, for longer than we could write, we've been worried about sacred places. We've had thought and consideration for what is holy, what is not, what is sacred, what is not. And so there's been something within human consciousness that selected some sites as holy, and it's been every Some of these have been temples, tabernacles, mosques, teepees, sheds, or churches, but they were defined as sacred, holy spaces. We still have these to this day. In fact, I was talking to somebody the other day that was coming there from Idaho. They lived in Idaho. There was a town of about 500 people, and I was telling them how that if the church wanted to do it, they would have migrants and adolescents come in and, and help them feed them so they could have somebody over to feed them and train them. And so it was well in the past. It was just typical with around 500 people. Said we had 20 churches. 20 churches in a town of 500 people. Why? Because we're obsessed with sacred spaces. We just always have been. We're obsessed with sacred spaces. Why? Because we feel like the line between what is holy and what is not is very clear. And it's a really interesting thing because the first question we have to ask 11 years ago, at least, we know that we came up, humanity, before we could write, came up with the idea that we need to make this building look holy. So the first question, of course, is easy. Our question is why? Why? Why did we do this? Why would we want? Why did they intuit? Before they could intuit that they needed to write something down, that they needed to have a building where they could gather together and worship. Why? I think it's because somehow they intuited, or we always as human beings, as human beings have intuited, that all things are in some way connected to all other things. And regardless of what they were worshiping, they knew that there was something else, a divine force, a power pulling us all toward it, that all things do not exist in isolation. We knew that material reductionism, which material reductionism is just another statement, that the meaning we have in life is just made up. Material reductionism would say, you came up with what is natural and it's just something you and your father and so you put it into the world. Material reductionism says it doesn't matter, but we've known that that wasn't really true. We've known that there was a connection to a bigger thing. It reduces you, material reductionism reduces you to being a consumer rather than an eternally connected innately spiritual being. We've known that that wasn't right. We've known that we're more than just um, a worker at a Something happened where when you see something as holy, you feel connected to it. Right? You do. Why? Because we've, as human beings, as far back as we can tell, we intuited that we were connected. That there was something bigger there. 
why is it that when Jane uh, says we, uh, I said this to you, I said we didn't watch ABC uh, last night, Black Friday, and Simpsons decided that we needed to uh, you know watch all of the Walkmans, which there's 64 of them. Why is it that some guy with a bad Philadelphia accent coming back from the underdog campaign does something inside of us? Because we intuit that we're connected. When I feel his overcoming, when we see a child that is, is hurt or been abused or has been neglected, we feel something. Why? Because we know the material reduction principles is true. We know that we're more than what we do as an individual. We know that there's a bigger story that we've always been a part of. And so what these temples began as a way that we could gather together. The story that we have been taking part of since the beginning is a bigger story. The story of a good creation, the story of a good God, the story of connecting creation to individuals being restored to this good God. You hear that? Good creation, good God, good God. And the story of us getting connected or restored back to the good God. So we've known that there's this big story. Now, the power of building a temple or a sacred space was that it helped people conceive of that which was holy and sacred. So we as human beings, knowing that there's a bigger story, built these temples or sacred spaces where we conducted our religious gatherings as faith communities to help us conceive of that which is bigger than us. So what we did is we said, okay, there's something bigger happening outside of us. We feel it in our bones. We feel it deep inside of us. We don't know what it is. We don't know why it is. Some, at some point, they said it was a rock. At some point, they said it was the wind. At some point, they said it was the sun. At some point, they said it was a golden calf. But in some way, we knew there was something else happening. And so what happened was somehow in these primitive ways, throughout time, we started building these sacred spaces where we gathered together as people that worshipped the thing that was bigger than us because we knew it was all connected. That's the why. So for, before we could write it down, we gathered together to do this. And since to this day, we still do the same. We gather together in sacred spaces and we say, okay, this is a holy place. This is somewhere where God is. And we gather together on behalf of this sacred thing that says there's a bigger picture. There's more happening than just me. And so within that, what we started doing is we started calling the place where they would gather, that gathering, that temple, that tabernacle, what became holy or sacred. This was deeply important because it served to give us a place to gather on behalf of this holy thing. But the problem, and so then all of the things that happened inside of that holy sacred space were what? Holy sacred. It became very ritualistic, didn't it? You read about Leviticus and you read about, they were very specific about what you had to do to be able to go into the holy place. They were very specific about who could go into the same holy place as you, who couldn't. And the Jewish religion was not, not uh, exclusive of that. Every religion had their own thing. And we have our own thing. 
talked to a woman who um, was divorced in her 70s but with an attitude toward it. In 1970, not the 1800s, which would be surprised by how far you go back historically. In the 1970s and 80s of Southern Pennsylvania, she still had to go take her kids outside and stand on the sidewalk while they first communed because she had been divorced. The pastor told her that because her husband would beat her and her children black and blue, that it was okay for her to divorce her husband because he was in good standing. And he was a man in his 70s or 60s that could divorce her. In fact, the, what was taught was that the husband or that, that the husband who was the abuser would get saved by your witness when you stand up. So what she did was she went and, and went through the, the difficult process of appealing to the pastor. The pastor said, no, it's okay, you can do this. But what he didn't tell her was there are consequences for this. The consequences were during when communion was served, during the holy sacrament, communion, she had to stand outside of the sacred place because she was unholy. See, we've always had in our sacred spaces rules. Everybody has different ones, but we all have rules. In fact, in most Catholic churches, St. Peter would say, you can't take communion with people's kids. Right? It's very common. There's a lot of churches that actually say this. Don't, before we start casting stones or encouraging people to have sex with others, don't take communion. Our Protestant faith is not that far off. So this the idea it was deeply important, but the problem of these sacred spaces, temples, tabernacles, teepees, sheds, and churches, mosques, So this, the problem was that it caused us to begin to believe that some space is sacred and holy and some space is not. The beauty of this is it perfectly parallels our spiritual journey. We are constantly building new temples or establishing fresh ways to connect with God. But if we stay there, we begin to isolate ourselves from the big picture, cause there to wander. So I grew up in an environment where there was certain things I could be listening to um, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash in the parking lot, but that wasn't allowed to be played inside the church. Why? Because inside the temple was what? Sacred and holy. Um, we, there, were, there were clothes. I, please bear in mind, I'm, I am building a straw man argument. Probably pushing a little bit hard, but I'm doing so for a purpose. There are things that you would wear very comfortably in public outside of church, but there was church clothes. Right? Church clothes. We literally called them church clothes. I remember being a young man, and my dad made me go back upstairs because I didn't have on an undershirt. And when you went to church under your dress shirt, you had to have an undershirt on. Why? Because it was holy. Because some spaces, a 
because I didn't hold on to that long enough. And so what happens within our lives, this parallels exactly what we do. And the reality is we needed to do this. We needed to have these places. Pressing in is deeply, deeply, deeply important that we create these places that begin to be a gathering point where we recognize that there's something happening outside of ourselves. This was, from the beginning of time, a deeply important thing. And so I want to be clear, before we go to the next phase, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that we've done wrong or failed. But what happens is, in the same way in our lives, we create temples, we create avenues and areas of who we are, understandings, methodologies, practices that we feel connect us to God. And then if we aren't careful, we become uncomfortable with the idea of connecting with God outside of that methodology and practice. We build within our life, our spiritual journeys, temples, places we meet with God, and everything else is normal space. And what actually is supposed to happen is if we stay there in that, in that sacred space, in that method of, no, this is how I pray. Which here's the deal. If the only way you can hear the voice of God is across Sin Willow, that's a temple. And you're missing the rest of the space. If the only way you can pray is in tongues, that's a temple. And here's the reality. Both of those things were necessary temples. Why? Because they gave us a point of connection whereby we could connect with God. But what he intends to do is just like we have to do in the journey of life, we do with temples. First we build the temple, which is we experience something with God who teaches us about him. And then guess what you have to do next? Lay it out on the board. Because he wants us to understand that there were never walls in the first place. Those, those are vitally and deeply important. It's like we teach, it's the way we teach, uh, the, the way we teach our children. You, as an adult, you don't have to go through and, and have some of the explanations because your logic and reason has developed. But as a child, you have to teach them do and do not and have specific ways that you train them how to do that, or that you, uh, you're you a good person because X or Z, because they don't have the rationale developed. But once they have that rationale developed, it's no longer fear of being grounded that tells them that they shouldn't steal. And so does that mean that that idea of being taught that you shouldn't steal because you're going to get grounded is wrong? Absolutely not. You needed that. That was a point of connection where you understood that there were consequences for your actions. But we move past that. So what happens in our life is a healthy spiritual journey is always building a temple and then tearing it down. And when you tear it down, what you're actually doing, let me be really clear about what I mean by tearing it down. You don't destroy the practice. You actually say that the way that I met God in that place and in that practice can invade every other space of who I am. You invite him that you met inside the walls, outside of those walls. You 
don't, then you're not tearing down the temple because the temple is bad and wrong and you're leaving what you found in the temple. You're actually just saying there were never any walls in the first place. So you tear down the walls to allow him to invade every other space. But we have to start with a connection. And somehow we got that. Somehow we gather in that way. Because if not, the healthy spiritual journey just stays us isolated in that space. And we make it just really difficult. That's why we hang out with Christians. Why? Well, because if I hang out with people that aren't Christians, then they can, um, they, they impact me. Rotten apple spoils the whole chicken caboodle. Whatever, you know, what, whatever the analogy is. And we do that, don't we? We think, no, now that I'm saved, well, and we say really dumb stuff probably like, well, I need to be around Christians and fellowship them because I am a carpenter by nature. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, but the, the reality of it is, is salt seasons a bland meal. You get to introduce people to flavor. And what I love about that idea is that in the midst of this, I get to meet him in here and then find ways to tear down the walls of what I've encountered in here so they can invade everything else in my life. And all of our journeys are that way. So it becomes, how did you meet and encounter him? And if we're not careful, it it will become that that's the only way we can hear his voice. And will I tell you what I've learned is if I try to put him in that box, this is how I hear his voice. If I tell God that the only way I can hear his voice is in Kashinoa, what he eventually says to me is, you are using Kashinoa to manipulate me. I don't speak to you because of that methodology. I speak to you because of the heart that drove you to get on that boat. I don't speak to you because of the way you worship. I speak to you because of what God that drew you drawn to me. And so what eventually happens is we'll spend enough time before where it's like all of a sudden the ice starts drying up and I start asking the Lord, Lord, I'm doing all the right things. And he's like, yep, you are. He invites us to tear down the walls. So we have to understand that God is absolute and will not share his absoluteness ever with anyone else. Even in Moses' day, you find it being conveyed to the people in Moses' day, didn't you hear his voice, but you didn't see his shape? So he actually talks to the people of Israel and says, you heard the voice of God, but you didn't see his shape. The reason this is such a big deal, in fact, this is revolutionary for the people at that time, is because the way you honored a deity was by creating or building an image of some kind that you could then worship as a reference point. So it was revolutionary for Moses to say the God that we're worshiping has no shape for us to define an image for. And so what he says is God cannot be captured in form because he has no borders, he has no boundaries, he has no form, 
And God then affirms this by telling Moses, and he says, who are you that I'm putting you back in prison? I am the God of your father. Every other God that we see in the Old Testament, we do realize that our God wasn't, I know we have the Bible, but it's telling a very specific story. It doesn't mean everybody else, but we were the first people to come up with a God to worship. His name is Everybody else's God had an image of him. Why do you think it was that they tried to take and make a golden calf? We do understand that the golden calf was never to replace God. The golden calf was to give God an image. The golden calf, we think that they were trying to replace Elohim. No, 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 no. What they said is that the golden calf was Elohim. They were trying to give God an image. And what God was trying to convince them is, no, 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 I am that I am. And what he meant by that is, I've never been a God who's wanted to be confined by shape and form. I've been a God who wants to be defined by relationship. And a God who's shapeless, formless, bound, and boundaryless is always a God that you only encounter in relationship. You don't, you don't, because what they would do is they had all these other gods and they would specifically worship the sun god. And what did the sun god do? Sun god gave sun. So they had gods and their shape actually defined what they did. So their shape was a definition of what that god provided for them. What God, Yahweh, did was to say, no, 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 no. I'm not defined by what I do. I'm defined by who I am because I've always been So Moses goes further in this, and he says, He is I am that I am. Job speaks of this, and Job says, How can we even search the borders of this creation? God has always been trying to say, We can put these things in place, but then he says, But I'm bigger than that. I'll allow you to have these spaces, but then I'm going to move out past it. Jesus speaks this way and references the passage that we spoke about earlier. He says it again when he's describing what God and the Spirit is like, when he's describing what the kingdom of God is like. And he says, God is like the wind that blows wherever it wants. You don't see where it comes from or where it goes, but you feel its effect. That's what Jesus said God is like. And he said that to a people who had a picture and a form and a ritual everything about their God. Why? Because everything is spiritual. So David gets to have this sort of back and forth of what David actually says is the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Do you realize what David is actually saying here? What the psalmist is actually presenting is rather than just there being a God who dwells in a building, in a space, in a tent, in a tabernacle, where that's if you wanted to meet with God, you went to the place, to the temple. What David says is, no, 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 no. The whole thing is a temple. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof is David's way of saying, no, no, no. It's not just, I know that God, that's been a way that we've met with him, but it's bigger than that because the whole thing is a temple. 
and this is still looking just really bad. Let's see if anyone can point something out about this real quick. So the way this is actually supposed to work is he says, no, 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 I know that you feel like on Sundays between the hours of 10 and noon, God moves in that sacred holy building with the, the pointy thing on top. But what actually David says is it's all a temple. The hospital is a temple. The factory where you work is a temple. Your living room is a temple. The grocery store is a temple. The forest is a temple. Your yard is the temple. The whole thing is a temple. So he invites us to to find these ways that we meet with him. But then eventually what he says is, I don't want to be bound by that. Because really he was honoring our need for a, a connection more than he was really saying this is the route you should be. God has an incredible way of figuring out how to identify our community and meet with us where we are. And so what he does is he brings himself down to our level and says, you need a, a reference point. I'll give you that. I'm going to dwell on that just a moment. But he's always trying to draw us out of that. He's always trying to get us to slow down and rest. He's always trying to get us to understand that the whole thing is a temple. So, my job is not to keep this temple, whoops, sorry, propped up. My job is to give people a device or a method to access God and then give them a safe space for people to move past that method and find God in that everywhere. So my job is to facilitate you finding means, methods, practices, rituals, and patterns to connect with God. But then my job is to then help you allow that to invade every other area of who you are. The challenge for that is it becomes really, really difficult if the job of the leader is to get a paycheck from the temple that took his kids through college. So if the, if the way the relationship the leader of the temple has is, to, um, is, is the means by which they feed more means, I'm not sure why I thought of the temple as that. But if, if, the, if that may be Sadie's daughter here. Um, but if the way... If the way that this has been set up, then guess what? The job of the pastor becomes telling you that the only way you can find God is to keep coming back to the temple. I've got to tell you that this is where he is, and the only way you're going to keep finding him is to keep coming back to the temple. Why? Because that's the thing that keeps food on my table. Do you see a conflict of interest? When in reality... space where we can come up with methods and means and processes, then how do we also give safe space for you to venture outside of that and for you to tear those things down and to venture outside of the walls? You find him in the temple and then you tear down the walls to the temple and you find out he was never just inside there anyway. The whole thing is a temple. But this confusion causes us to ask the wrong questions, the idea of what the temple is, what this church is, what this facility is, what this 
treated you as rich, weird, bad, uninformed, frustrating. You begin to ask questions like, do you hear some music? I say, wait, wait, wait. Is that contemporary Christian music? You just think that probably is, but that's beside the point. But the reality of it is, is that is that a Christian actor? Is that a Christian business? Is that a Christian restaurant? Well, they're closed on Sundays. Well, it's Sunday, and I want a freaking chicken sandwich. That's what we do. We have these ideas and we say, we define, especially with the arts, we have Christian artists and secular artists and, and whether they're, I really don't think it matters when they point their camera at a tree and click the button, whether they have prayed the sinner's prayer or not. Why? Because they're taking a picture of the temple. The whole thing is the temple. And so we, de- we make up man-made lines of what's holy and secular. And I remember being in youth group, and if there was any song that we would play, or at least what we were playing, that it even sounded like a secular song, we would be told, you can't play that anymore. Why? Well, that sounds too much like this song. I hadn't even heard that song. But okay, why? Because that's secular. The sacred space. You guys notice that uh, one of my favorite songs is coming up before church started. Keep them. Why? Sacred. Everything we do should be Jesus filled in its everything. Why? Because it's the temple. Paul addresses this last week. Pick it when you can. Okay. Paul addresses this in First Corinthians, but notice that we have the Romans eleven passage. It, it's pretty obvious. I don't need to, to explain to you why that's relevant to this morning. Um, because if the first three is holy, the whole lunch is holy. Keep the first three. But guess what? The whole thing is holy. Because we were bought with a price. So, in this way, as we look at this, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to touch on something here. Because in this way, we also don't have to feel like things that we have been told are enemies of our faith are really enemies of our faith at all. I grew up in an environment, and I, I don't mean like my home, but, but specifically in a, in a Christian evangelical framework that said that science and Christianity were enemies. Right? Because science used carbon dating to say that the earth was 13.8 billion years old, and, and um, Kenny Ham says that Genesis says it's 6,000 years old. And so what I've been taught is that those two things then become at odds with one another. And so when we have things that come out, like this week there was a new report, uh, these four years ago that the Congress decided to have a new report on the impacts of global warming. 
and the church gave birth about how it is is that this is the live sign that's trying to, to cause our children to be redeemed blah 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 the reality of it is I here's what I think and I'll just give you the visual um, what I think is really funny about this I think first of all I know that I actually have people telling me all the time well I'm just really more interested I'm not interested in science what thousands of scientists have proven to be true. I'm interested in God's truth. Is there any other kind? If it's true, it's God's. There is no other proof. I mean, I I hope we're all like, okay, Jesus named himself some science report that says that carbon gas that's produced by human beings is making the world warming threatens who God is? And I really don't care if you believe in global warming or not. That's completely irrelevant. But my point is, it should have nothing to do with your faith. It should be completely irrelevant to your faith. It should be more about like, you know, how invested you are in Exxon joke it was a bad joke but it was a joke you know it those things yeah if you if you're giving me that argument like scientifically i don't agree i'm like okay fine i don't care if you think the world's 100 years old if that's your scientific opinion i that's fine but it doesn't threaten my faith and i love the idea that what's eventually going to happen is if you have science here and christianity here and they're walking in opposite directions because we've been told they're enemies if they walk in opposite directions without agreeing, where do they end up? Facing one another. They run back into one another. Why? Because you can't escape truth. It's all his. You're never going to escape it. So if it ends up being not true, who cares? And if it ends up being true, it's his in the first place. So it just shouldn't matter anymore. At least in in relationship to my belief. And so when we look at this, it becomes a really interesting thing that we've been told somehow that science and faith or that education and Christianity are enemies. Do you realize that the owners of Hobby Lobby last year spent $14 million lobbying to get certain things Because they believe that the reason we're not seeing young people staying in church is because they're not learning that God's word reopens our faith. Now, whether or not your opinion, I believe God is the creator, and that's completely irrelevant to this conversation, but I would venture to say, can you imagine what what 10 to 15 million dollars could have done for people who really believe? the day, if we really think about this as the connection of the church, God 
the whole thing is a temple. So what you actually find is in this passage, it goes on to say, Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians uh, 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 chapter 3. And I love this because what he was dealing with at this time in the first Corinthian church in the first century is that there were different people that were leaders in different movements. Okay, I, I know this is really, 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 really hard to imagine, but they had different leaders of these movements and the followers of these different
Michael Rambo death deal spirals by the way the computer's getting ready to lock up. Um, so just bear with me as we get there. But here's the cool thing. Paul starts with saying, don't worry about where the truth is coming from. If it's true, it's yours. How much of our Christian lives have been spent in fear of hearing something from somebody else and then someone else coming to deceive us and lead us astray? forget that thing. I threw the book out. How many, how many remembers when this, how many remember what, what Morningstar was like? I remember having serious conversations with my mother about thinking about throwing away, probably burning, I'm just burning, my Morningstar books that this woman had written and all of my CDs because I had finally watched a video and saw Susie in a wedding dress waving during worship and I thought that had to be demonic and so everything had to go. They did that really weird thing where they did that giant Jeremiah 33 and the whole choir's dressed up in Eskimo. And I thought, this cannot be of God. Why? Because I was in absolute fear of deception. And so I didn't know that you could actually separate because even if the source might be off, if it's true, what Paul says is it's yours. They've already turned off at this point. So guess what? So that means if the Dalai Lama says it and it's true, it's yours. That means if the Pope says it and it's true, it's yours. That means if Joseph Smith says it and it's true, it's yours. That means if Donald Trump says it and it's true, it's yours. And that also means if Hillary says it. I don't think they've got there up yet. If she said it and it's true, it's yours. Why? It's all yours. Because what we don't really understand, we read the Bible and we give equal weight to Peter and to Paul and to the apostles. Some of that kind of thing should be. But at the time, it would have been like the people who were in the spiritual camps and the people who were over here saying that speaking in tongues is not okay. And when's the last time you heard somebody in Pentecostal group encourage you to read a message ever? It's happened. And so even within our own group, I mean, I, I recently was told by somebody that Joel Osteen is demonic. Demonic. Now, I don't necessarily enjoy listening to him, but have I thought, why is it demonic? Well, he just really doesn't preach the word. It's all that Christian-like stuff. Well, maybe, but if it's true, it's yours. Now, here's the Apple Rambo death deal part. Paul doesn't stop there. If it comes from the Lord and it's true, something and and you're lying and think well I can't I can't just be 
with new science these days, that's spiritual. When they come up with uh, a remedy for cures for cancer, I don't have to get frustrated and say, well, that's of the world. I believe that God's going to heal it through supernatural healing. I need to rejoice in that true understanding that comes because guess what? It's his, and if it's his, he's given it to me. than we could possibly imagine. Then he goes on, Paul says, of the world, it's yours. Or of life or of death, it's yours. Then he goes on, and this is a really fun one. He says, or of things present or things to come. Now, what he really means by that is that if you glean a truth of something from something we currently understand, it's yours. And the truths that we haven't yet understood people are yours too. Paul, the apostle, is giving grace for new ways to understand God. Because what they would have said at that time is he would have said, no, 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 no. It has to be like this. Paul said it works this way. How many times have you shared experience and encounter that you had with God and the first thing people do is they start quoting scripture get out their Bible. No, it's right here. But Paul says, there's something we don't yet understand. And the truth we haven't even encountered yet is true. It's yours. Because it's things to come. So he starts it small. It's from your church. It's profitable for you. It's yours. If you get it from another church, who believes differently from you, and it's profitable, it's yours. Then he goes to the world, and and then he finally goes to everything. So, if you encounter something that's true, it's from God, it belongs to you. And it's that simple, because the whole thing is coming. Now, if you remember, I started at the very beginning by saying, we're going to talk about cancer insurance today. You thought I forgot, so then wait and see if I remember. I know I just saw these little single thoughts.
But the fact is, is remember, is we come here to be reminded in this place that doesn't have a huge church that everything about us should be transformed. The way we come here in moments where we sit and we meditate and we think about what we to do in our meditation are moments of magnificent transformation. Now for all of your life, I want you to think of this experience with me. So Father, we give thanks for this bread. We give thanks for the bread represented for us here. But Lord, that we symbolize his body that was broken, but it also symbolizes the daily bread, the, the food that we do every single day, that we don't take it. The, the mundane, what is ordinary moment of, of our daily existence is an opportunity to remember you, Father. So we ask you, Father, that you would cause us to find you in this bread, that we would eat of that and that it would be so we thank you for this bread. In the same way, we take the bread, the table of the cup, and we say, thank you. Thank you that we get to eat freely, that we get to partake freely, and that we get to enjoy the enlivening that comes from the bread and cup. And that just as Jesus was was going to die when he said, will you also drink of the cup that I drink? We say yes. We will drink of your cup. We will embrace all that it means. And every single cup, every single moment, every single instance, every single opportunity, we will drink deeply of that Help us to drink deeply of every time we close our eyes, every um, every breath that we breathe. Let it be with the recognition of this cup. This is holy ground. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online 
at harvesthouse.live.